coming to you from the American College of Emergency Physicians annual event in Boston, Massachusetts. This is ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. I'm joined today by Dr. Carl Schultz. He is from Irvine, California, which we are very jealous. He received the Disaster Medical Sciences Award for his internationally acclaimed expertise and research into disaster preparedness for both weapons of mass destruction and natural disasters. Dr. Schultz is a professor of emergency medicine at the University of California Irvine School of Medicine. And among his other duties, he is the research director at the Center for Disaster Medical Sciences at UC Irvine Medical Center. Dr. Schultz, welcome to you. Thanks for inviting me on the program. Yeah, great to have you. So let's just get right into that. How did you get into disaster medicine? Oh my gosh, it is actually incredibly serendipitous. As a young faculty member, I um, at the time had no real sense of direction. And just uh, because I was the youngest faculty member in the group, when a call to attend a disaster process meeting came down, it was sort of passed downhill and I was at the bottom and so it landed on my desk. And so I was asked to go and attend this countywide disaster event. And I had no idea what was going to happen, but I really got excited about it. And that was it. Since then, I've been doing this. And I've been told sometimes that I was wasting my time because you couldn't make a career out of disaster medicine. And back in the 80s, you probably couldn't. But we stuck with it, and it's worked out really well. Yeah, it's interesting. It sounds almost counterintuitive hearing that today because I think disaster medicine, and I think that would be a go-to for a lot of people in emergency medicine. It's very high adrenaline, high impact, you know, not to put it in... uh, terrible terms, but I'm surprised that it sort of landed on your desk as sort of a dump, as uh, something that nobody else wanted. That's what the environment was like uh, in 1985, which is when this happened. It really was a brand new idea, and nobody really knew what to do with it. And so it was something that just looked like an obligation with no return on investment. So they tried to get the youngest and most inexperienced person to do it because they wouldn't know any better. So they asked me to do it. But it's turned out to be, uh, it it was a little bit of venture capital because, again, several uh, of uh, of my colleagues and my chair who meant well advised me that this was going to be a non-starter, that you're going to kill your career, you're never going to make it in this. But we had some, some different views. Earthquakes in California really are a tragic event for the population perspective, but it really is a driver for innovation. And that was one of the things that really helped jumpstart my career was the earthquake in Northridge in 1994. Right. So it sounds like a, a lot of your work unexpectedly had to take a turn for the fundraising or for the platform that disaster medical services deserve their due. You raise an interesting point. Funding for for disaster medicine in general has has been slow to come. After an event, there's a lot of interest, and and most of the funded research that I have done has come within this two-year golden period after an event. After that, it basically evaporates. And so we're left with trying to scrounge funding to to continue research, but beyond research, it's even for the, the provider network, the National Disaster Medical System. This is a fundamentally important part of our response capability, and it's really not a major, uh, heavily funded entity. It, it sort of has to look for handouts from various of the federal government agencies. It's not, not because of any ill will by anyone, but it's just the reality. There's so many needs for funding. It just is not a, a priority, at least yet, what it could be. But there, there's, I think there's hope that, that that will change over time. And do you think that being in California yourself, the site of natural disasters, specifically earthquakes, was instrumental to being able to put disaster medicine on the grid for UC Irvine? 
Actually, I, I would have to agree with that. Yes, I think so. You always hate to say that something that's very terrible was a great impetus for your career, but, but that was the reality. When those things happen, it really grabs everybody's attention and they realize the difficulties that they have trying to cope with these things. And so if you can provide solutions to problems, people will listen. And it's been very effective uh, in, in moving processes forward, at least within California. Right. It's interesting because as you go from west to east across our, just our own country, natural disasters sort of follow a flavor of the, of the area pattern. I mean, from the earthquakes to the west to tornado activity in the, in the Midwest to hurricanes in the east and, of course, spattering of all of them across everywhere. And yet... Your center in particular, being the Center for Disaster Medical Sciences, sounds altogether unique. I haven't even heard of many other science <laughs> centers devoted to disaster medicine. There, there are not many. There are a few, but there are not a lot of them. And I suspect as the specialty matures, we will see more of them. They are a, a natural outcome of more development and more interest. And I think what, what we're seeing is more and more of the world's populations are being concentrated in areas of, of high disaster risk. And so the problem is going to get worse, not better. And so the needs will be more acute over time. And so I think that we will see, for lack of a, to borrow from the, from the business uh, community, that we have a growth industry here. And that once, once we hit a, a certain critical a number of people who are participating in the field, I, I think we will see more centers and, and this will become a much more well-known and respected specialty. Right. And it would be ignorant for me not to then get into the man-made disasters, specifically weapons of mass destruction and other of these con- concerns that are always on the map for us, foreign policy and otherwise. Obviously, early 2000s, it came onto the grid for us in a very wholly unexpected way. Did that also push forward a lot more proactive thinking in disaster medical preparedness? It did. There was a movement in the late 1990s that carried through to early 2000s where the federal government funded a process to try and educate the 120 most populous cities in the United States about the risks because at that point really nobody understood what uh, biological or chemical terrorism looked like or or why they had to worry about it. And then, of course, we had the subway attack in Tokyo, and it sort of made everybody aware of the potential for these kinds of things to go wrong. And so they actually funded that, and and there was a a concerted effort. I was part of that project to to go and educate the cities. And and the the focus has somewhat drifted more now towards blast injuries because those are really still the, the terrorist weapon of choice. But the exposure of the uh, citizens in uh, Syria to chemical weapons, it's still out there, and we still run that risk. And your center, does it devote a fair amount of time, resources, consideration, thought into that particular sector of disaster medical preparedness? We do a fair amount of teaching. We're part of a uh, residency program in emergency medicine. Mm -hmm. And so uh, part of the the, the program is to teach the the basics of at least chemical and uh, biological terrorism to our residents. We even had uh, an access, which is pretty rare, once a year we gave an afternoon instruction to the medical students. It was actually a formal course. It only was one day, so it's not very long. But to get any uh, access to medical students is a big deal. So uh, we were fortunate that our medical school actually gave us that opportunity. Yeah, I wish I had that when I was, uh, <laughs> honestly. Uh, just because I would have remembered that day, I think, beyond most others, I think, in my training. The students seemed to, to enjoy it. And we actually were brought back several times uh, during the next few years to do it, mostly because of the reviews that we got from the students. Interesting. 
Well, if you're just tuning in, this is ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernolz, and I'm joined by Dr. Carl Schultz. We're talking about disaster medical preparedness and the work that he's done to earn the Disaster Medicine Award at ASAP. So, Dr. Schultz, I understand you've also uh, done some significant work with the Department of Defense around disaster medical preparedness. Tell me a little bit about that work. That actually was what I was alluding to earlier. The, uh, the Department of Defense was the major uh, funder and coordinator for that. It was called the Domestic Preparedness Program. And their, that was their, essentially their baby. And they recruited civilians to teach it, which I think was wise on their part because you're trying to reach out to civilians. It took some effort to bring us in and, and get us up to speed, but I think it worked well, and, and we were able to then sort of talk civilian to civilian, and, and I think it was very effective. Hmm. And we, we alluded a lot to the fundraising campaigns, the venture capitalism that kind of goes into, or at least did go into, the rise of disaster medicine as a recognized field across the nation. But where are we in the state of fundraising to create better funding for disaster medicine research? The biggest drawback is, is there isn't an entity in the U.S. whose job it is to fund disaster medicine research. We have multiple national institutes of health that are uh, tasked with funding uh, psychiatric illness, research into psychiatric illness and into drug abuse into all kinds of things related to heart and lung illnesses. Lots of these institutes, all with specific tasks, but there is no one entity that is really assigned the role of funding and encouraging disaster medicine research. And therefore, we have to sort of find another entity that that sort of looks at what we do. So if we wanted to do something along the lines of mass casualty triage, we might be able to get either the the Centers for Disease Control or maybe the National Science Foundation, depending who you could get a hold of. But really, that's not their mandate. The Centers for Disease Control is basically dealing with population health and infectious disease. National Science Foundation is dealing with a lot of things, dealing with engineering and whatnot. And FEMA Um, wouldn't be an option? FEMA is actually not a research uh, entity. It it is basically a response entity. So when, like, Hurricane Katrina came through and, and did all the damage, they were responsible for coming in and providing funding to try and get the city back on its feet again. That's basically what they do. They really, um, for all intents and purposes, don't fund research. Hmm. It also seems like there isn't much funding to help maintain trained response teams either, which I imagine maybe is where FEMA would fall into place. It's FEMA's goal predominantly is, is sort of the citizen victims. Like in the Northridge earthquake, my parents' house was destroyed, and they came in and they were able to get low-interest loans from FEMA to, to rebuild, and, and that's basically the, the focus of FEMA. But you mentioned something else, which was the funding for the, the, in the response organization, which is sort of built around the National Disaster Response System, and they get some funding, but these are extremely important, very hardworking people, and what they could do is so much more if they had an ongoing, constant, reliable financial support. It would be very important, and I think the country would benefit from that, and they would see uh, a much more robust response. Hmm. Well, let me ask you this then, to stem from that. What do you think about the role of disaster medical volunteers? Is there a place for them in our current system? Absolutely. And, and it depends on, on how and under what circumstances you volunteer. But even, even going down to the very basic 
civilian after an event. When you looked at, for instance, the Armenian earthquake in the 80s, 85 to 90 percent of those people rescued alive from the buildings who ultimately survived, not necessarily who were rescued alive but then died, but were rescued alive and, and survived were rescued by citizen volunteers. So to say that citizens have no role really flies in the face of, of the data that we have that says while they can be difficult to manage, and that's definitely true, they have a real role to play. And a lot of work is just now being done to try to figure out ways to better integrate citizen volunteers who show up spontaneously into disaster events. And then you move on to, to the volunteers who actually staff the disaster medical response teams. And those individuals train, they meet, but the again... They have to do that in their free time, and this is becoming much more of a, uh, of a professional endeavor now. It really, for the for the medical side, it's really not something that just anybody can do. You really have to have uh, a minimum level of training, and so this is becoming an increasingly professionalized group of people. But we still don't have the funding to support them. Hmm. Well, we covered a lot of, a lot of ground. <laughs> Any uh, parting thoughts that you want to add for our audience? Uh, I think that this is a, a, a very robust and exciting specialty. I, I think that it has a tremendous future, and I think the citizens of our country would really benefit if this specialty continues to develop and evolve into a mature professional group. And I, I just hope that we could get the support that uh, is necessary to get us to that end, and I think everybody would benefit from that. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Dr. Schultz. I've been speaking with Dr. Carl Schultz. He's the recipient of the Disaster Medical Sciences Award from ASAP. And he comes to us from UC Irvine. Again, Dr. Schultz, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for inviting me on the program. For more access to this and other interviews on ReachMD, come on down to ReachMD.com. We'll have a lot of great coverage of disaster medical content for you. And looking forward to seeing you. Thanks again.